medical school microbiology lesson one. You learn about gram-positive cocci in clusters. And so the great personifying bacterium is marked in your mind. I wonder, perhaps it's the likening to fruit or the fact that it is surrounded by an entire genus of generally non-pathogenic species. But somehow, Staphylococcus aureus is often not regarded as the prototypical, highly virulent, obligate pathogen that it is. Is it the fact that many cases of Staphylococcus aureus infection are mild and non-invasive? Or is a methicillin-susceptible Staphylococcus aureus seemingly less threatening than one that is methicillin-resistant? In any case, Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia is actually associated with significant morbidity and mortality. And fortunately, there are a number of components of clinical management which have been shown to have a significant impact on patient outcomes. This is Michael Mayo, and I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Penter. Michelle is an infectious diseases specialist, and she's based at the Chris Harney Baraguanov Academic Hospital in Johannesburg. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for joining me, and welcome to Michael Mayo. Thank you so much for having me on today's podcast. I'm so excited to talk about today's topic, which, as you have alluded to, certainly and rightly gives both microbiologists as well as us clinicians many sleepless nights. And with good reason. Estimates are that the attributable mortality associated with, with Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia is between 20 to as high as 40%. As you have also alluded to, this is one of the infections where the value of an infectious diseases consultation actually improves patient outcomes. I hope that today we will be able to share with everyone our respective roles in the management of Staph aureus bacteremia in terms of what exactly it is that we do and how we approach Staph aureus bacteremia so that even if our listeners don't have access to an ID physician in the place where they work, they too will feel confident and capable to manage the serious condition. Before we get into today's discussion, remember if you sign up to receive updates on our website, you'll receive an email notification of new episodes released and a heads up about upcoming episodes. You'll also find our episode storyboard summaries on our social media pages. Unlike germs, microbial is for sharing. So please forward our details and also leave us a review at podchaser.com. You'll find us wherever podcasts are found or directly on our website. You'll find all the links in the show notes. So Michelle, let's start by discussing appropriate diagnostics for Staph aureus bacteremia. What would the recommendations be to ensure that the diagnosis is made timely? With such a high mortality rate, I think we can all agree that the successful management of Staph aureus bacteremia hinges on our ability to suspect, diagnose, and appropriately manage these patients. As such, there are three important points to think about here that I will touch on. The first one is based on clinical reasoning and clinical suspicion. That is, which of my patients is at risk for Staphylococcus bacteremia? These can be divided into either patient factors, that is, is my patient one who injects drugs or has skin diseases or bed sores where that usual defense that the skin provides has been broken through? The other half of this equation are healthcare factors. Does my patient have a risk because of the things we have done to them, like inserting venous catheters or other foreign bodies such as prosthetic joints or pacemakers? Other things to think about are, is our patient on hemodialysis or have they had a recent surgical procedure? The second point is based on appropriate and timely investigations. 
If you guys haven't had a listen to episode two of Microbe Mail on blood culture myth-busting, I'd highly recommend that you cast your ears back to that episode as soon as this one is done. As the name suggests, Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia is the condition where the bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus is found in the bloodstream. We often get asked if the Staphylococcus aureus retrieved from blood cultures could be seen as a contaminant because of incorrect skin asepsis at the time of blood draw. Remember that it is estimated that only 1.5% of blood cultures positive for Staph aureus are due to contamination, so we always treat this result as a true infection rather than as a contamination. It's vital to make your blood cultures count. Do them properly and do them right. Staph aureus is an organism that multiplies with little difficulty in a blood culture bottle. Give this organism the best chance to do this by making sure that you inoculate enough bottles correctly. The last and third point, which cannot actually be overstated enough, is timeous and good communication between the microbiology laboratory and the attending doctors. This is a diagnosis in which both the positive outcome as well as the prevention of complications such as metastatic seeding really are dependent on correct and timeous management. It sounds like a silly thing, but make sure that your colleagues in the laboratory know how to get hold of you to relay the positive blood culture result. Make sure that your details are clear and legible for all you doctors listening. Thanks for that brief reminder again, Michelle. And it's really great that you've put this info into three clear pockets, and I completely agree with you. The emphasis on blood culture collection cannot be overstated. So Michelle, when it comes to blood culture collection, can you clarify for the listeners how to appropriately collect cultures? Again, this comes back to the blood culture mantra. Make your blood cultures count. Because Staph aureus is normally found on the skin, proper asepsis in blood culture collection cannot be emphasized enough. What I mean here is that this is a procedure that needs preparation and care. We may be fooled into believing that a blood culture draw is a quick and relatively uncomplicated thing to do. The truth of the matter is that a blood culture draw for microbiological sampling requires planning, getting everything you need together before you start, meticulous attention to the aseptic technique and good record keeping. In terms of what equipment is needed, I would refer your listeners to the South African Antibiotic Stewardship Program, the SASP guidelines, which are free and downloadable through the App Store on your phone. Something I would like to highlight in particular is the technique for both skin and port cleaning before cultures are taken. The cleaning solution that is recommended is chlorhexidine alcohol, which should be liberally applied and allowed to dry for 30 seconds before the blood draw is done. If you do not have access to chlorhexidine alcohol, an alternative is povidone iodine, remembering that this solution needs a minute to dry before the blood draw is undertaken. In an adult patient, at least 10 milliliters of blood needs to be collected per blood culture bottle that you are sending off. If you are performing other tests at the same time, always inoculate the blood culture bottles first. Thanks, Michelle. That was an excellent reminder. Listeners, you'll find a link to the SAS guideline in the show notes. Seeing as some patients with staph aureus bacteremia have a central venous catheter as a source, how can we take cultures to improve the diagnostic capability of our blood cultures in these patients? That's a great question, Lindana, and certainly a really important point for us to pause at. Many clinicians are not aware of the concept of paired blood cultures. What this means is that two sets of cultures are performed at the same time in patients with central venous catheters one set drawn directly through the central venous catheter and one set from a peripheral site at the same time. 
it's important to make sure that your present condition alerts the microbiology lab to the fact that the specimens are indeed paired so that appropriate inferences can be made should they flag positive. The way that paired blood cultures are interpreted is by calculating something called a differential time to positivity, also called a DTP. This is defined as the difference in time required for a positive culture between the peripheral blood and blood taken through a central venous catheter. Catheter-related bloodstream infections are diagnosed when the blood culture from the CVP, the central venous catheter, returns a positive result with more than 120 minutes difference to the set from the peripheral site returning a positive result. This helps to inform you if the line is indeed the likely source of the bacteremia. Michelle, I can't tell you how many times in the laboratory we see catheter tips submitted without blood cultures. So this is a really, really important point to emphasize to our listeners. Is it enough then to have diagnosed a Staphylococcus aureus from bloodstream and leave it basically as that, as a primary diagnosis, essentially a primary bacteremia? Definitely not. There are always two questions in infectious diseases. How did it get there and where else did it get to? If there is a Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, then there is a reason it is there. Keep asking yourself how this organism got into the bloodstream. The potential source should always be sought. Remember always that the most common risk for Staph aureus bacteremia is an IV line, which should always be removed. In fact, not removing the inciting IV line has been shown to be the strongest independent risk factor for the relapse of Staph aureus bacteremia. Similarly, removing other foreign bodies such as prosthetic valves, joints, and pacemakers also improve outcomes. In short, find that source and get it out ASAP if possible. Time for another shout out to a different microbe mail episode, the wonderful episode by Professor Guy Richards, Source Searching 101 and that useful mnemonic E-Big Laws. Up to a quarter of Staph aureus bacteremia cases, however, do not have an obvious source. The second question, where else did it get to, should never be forgotten. Bear in mind that Staph aureus in the bloodstream gets around and metastasizes to many different sites. The first sites we think about are the heart valves, bones, including intervertebral discs, and joints. But remember that this list is where we start. The looking may not end there, and you may have to examine obscure places like the epidural space and other intra-abdominal sites like the kidneys, just to name a few. Depending on your clinical suspicion of these possible deep-seated complications, you may need to do other investigations, like a spine MRI. You may also need these further investigations to localize sources or complications that may be amenable to aspiration, such as an infected joint. If your patient has Staph aureus bacteremia that has resulted in a deep-seated infection such as an endocarditis or vertebral osteomyelitis, the risk of relapse is high if the duration of treatment is insufficient. This is why it is so important to fully appreciate the extent of infection when it comes to Staph aureus bacteremia in ensuring good outcomes for your patients. Keep asking where else the Staph aureus has settled especially in cases where your patient is just not responding clinically to appropriate therapy. And just to reiterate again, in Staph aureus bacteremia, source control, whatever that source may be, is imperative. Michelle, you mentioned endocarditis as a possible source. So specifically, who's at risk of Staph aureus infective endocarditis and who should have echocardiography done? 
Ideally, all patients with Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia should undergo echocardiography to evaluate for the presence of endocarditis. We start with transthoracic echocardiography, sometimes abbreviated to TTE. Stopping at a transthoracic echo is enough if your patient is known to have acquired the infection in hospital during their current admission, if the blood cultures are negative within four days of the initial positive culture, if there are no clinical signs of infective endocarditis present, if all suspected inciting sources have been removed, and if your patient has defibest within 72 hours of initial positive blood culture while on appropriate management. We often get asked who with Staph aureus bacteremia also needs a transesophageal echocardiogram. Remember the transthoracic echo is not always enough to definitively exclude infective endocarditis if no vegetations are seen, and there may sometimes be a case for further transesophageal echo. Remember also that transesophageal echo is not a benign procedure, and so patients referred for it should be referred with a clear clinical indication. The reasons we may request further transesophageal echocardiography in patients with Staph aureus bacteremia may be in patients when we have a high clinical suspicion for infective endocarditis and an initial negative transthoracic echocardiogram. As an example, this would be a patient whose blood cultures remain persistently positive despite appropriate antimicrobial therapy, or patients with no obvious primary focus who have metastatic infective complications and an initial negative transthoracic echo. Other patients who need a transesophageal echocardiogram are those in whom we need to have a better look in the valves. These patients include all patients with a prosthetic valve or permanent pacemaker. Often, ideal images are difficult to obtain on a transthoracic echo in these patients because of suboptimal images because of the prosthetic material. A few studies have actually looked at clinical prediction rules to try tease out which patients with Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia may be at a higher risk for endocarditis. An example is the Verster score, which assesses variables independently associated with infective endocarditis in trying to decide which patients require transesophageal echocardiography. Interestingly enough, it has a negative predictive value of 98.8% when the score is less than or equal to two. Tools such as these scoring systems, along with the clinical parameters that I've outlined above, help us decide who qualifies for a transesophageal echocardiogram. Now, repeat blood cultures to document clearance from the bloodstream are not generally recommended in most infections. However, this is not the case with the Staph aureus bloodstream infection. That's right. For patients with Staph aureus bacteremia, follow-up blood cultures should always be drawn every 24 to 48 hours until clearance is demonstrated while the patient is on appropriate therapy. We do this to document timing of clearance of the bacteremia. This is a vital step and unfortunately not always done. The reason it's so important is that if we are sitting with a patient who is on appropriate therapy and they continue to culture Staph aureus on the blood, we know that we need to search for an ongoing focus of infection. This may be a device we've implanted. As an example, if you have a patient with a prosthetic heart valve, that you think is the source and you continue culturing Staph aureus, you need to be concerned about complications such as possible perivalvular abscess. The source of the ongoing bacteremia may also be in an anatomical site that the antimicrobial agent just isn't getting to, like an endocarditis, osteomyelitis or discitis. 
Once identified, these sources need adequate source control, if amenable. Microbiological clearance of blood cultures changes the way we treat and look at the patient with Staph aureus bacteremia. And because nothing in life is simple, be aware of what is known as the skip phenomenon. This is a negative blood culture followed by another positive blood culture. A single negative blood culture may therefore not be sufficient to document clearance. I think it's quite important to, to highlight that skip phenomenon. Um, and it's being described more and more frequently um, globally as well. So once we've actually made this diagnosis, what antimicrobial agents are generally recommended? Well, this depends on if you have a high clinical suspicion and are waiting for microbiological proof, so-called empiric therapy, or if the microbiology laboratory has informed you of a positive result and you are starting what is known as directed or targeted therapy. I would just like to pause here and remind our listeners that local guidelines for the treatment of Staph aureus bacteremia are highly dependent on the background rates of MSSA, that is, methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, versus MRSA, that is, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, in both the community as well as in the healthcare setting you practice in. Another reason to open those lines of communication between clinicians and microbiologists. For empiric therapy, the initial antimicrobial choice is based on local epidemiology. If you work in an environment where MSSA is more common, a beta-lactam agent with MSSA activity can be used for empiric therapy. An example would be amoxicillin clavulanate. If you use a beta-lactam agent with anti-staphylococcal cover, then the addition of toxicillin isn't necessary until you have a positive culture, at which point you would then narrow your cover to toxicillin. However, if MRSA rates are high, then empiric vancomycin is recommended. For definitive therapy and in settings where the predominant organism is MSSA, the definitive therapy that is recommended is cloxacillin 2 grams IV stat and then every six hours. If you have a patient with endocarditis, prosthetic heart valves, or other endovascular material, meningitis, or osteomyelitis, this dose needs to be increased to 3 grams IV stat and then 6 hourly. An alternative agent is kefazolin, 2 grams IV every 8 hours. If the patient absolutely cannot be treated with a beta-lactam, you can use vancomycin or daptomycin. But remember that these options are not first line. A common misconception that we encounter is that there are equivocal outcomes in patients with MSSA infection who are treated with vancomycin instead of an appropriate beta-lactam. This is not true, and vancomycin is not recommended without real contraindications to the usual first-line beta-lactams. In settings where the predominant organism is MRSA, the definitive therapy that is recommended is vancomycin, 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, uh, intravenously twice or three times a day, targeting a trough level of 15 to 20 micrograms per milliliter. Alternative therapies that may be used are keftaroline or telavancin. Now, when it comes to vancomycin, can you discuss dosing and realistic therapeutic drug monitoring recommendations that are particularly applicable for low and middle income settings? Sure. So vancomycin can be a tricky antimicrobial agent, and we have to do everything that we can to ensure that we use it appropriately and correctly. In the setting of an MRSA bacteremia, it is often the only drug that we have access to, certainly in many low and middle income settings, such as in South Africa. It is standard state practice. 
As we've seen previously, not getting dosing right may lead to an uncomplicated infection becoming complicated, leading to longer length of stay, higher risks of nosocomial infection, and higher mortality rates. Why is vancomycin so tricky? Well, we have to ensure that the vancomycin we are giving has the best chance of doing what we want it to do, and this depends on a few things. Vancomycin dosing is based on actual weight, so no guessing from the end of the bed. Vancomycin also needs ongoing monitoring in terms of patient renal function and vancomycin levels. A common pitfall we encounter is the lack of a loading dose given to the patient. We really need that loading dose to get above the minimum inhibitory concentration, the MIC, as fast as we can. This loading dose is calculated at 25 to 30 milligrams per kilogram and is given as a slow infusion. Once that loading dose is administered, we move to the maintenance phase at 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram intravenously twice a day. If the patient has renal impairment, dosing schedules may need to change. Again, if you're uncertain, call us. Because getting the dose right with vancomycin is such a big deal, monitoring is crucial. As we start to appreciate the impact of pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic influences on things like antimicrobial levels, a few nifty calculations have come into play. In the setting of vancomycin dosing, and specifically in the setting of staphylococcal bacteremia, endocarditis, and invasive infections, area under the serum concentration versus time curve for 0 to 24 hours, sometimes abbreviated to AUC24, is the preferred method for monitoring vancomycin therapy. If you have access to a clinical pharmacologist where you work, they are invaluable in this process. However, in many settings, the only way we have to measure if the vancomycin is appropriate is by checking levels. These are measured as trough levels. What does this mean? Well, it means that we look at the lowest level, which is taken before the fourth dose of vancomycin is given. We are aiming for a target of between 15 to 20 milligrams per liter. As you could imagine, these levels may change depending on things like renal function. And so the attending clinician needs to watch that creatinine. So one of the really confusing things about treatment of a staphylococcus bacteremia is how long it should be treated for and the duration of therapy. So Michelle, how long should a staphylococcus bloodstream infection be treated? Well, this depends on if the Staph aureus bacteremia is uncomplicated or complicated. Uncomplicated Staph aureus bacteremia is defined by clinical resolution of fever and systemic signs of infection by day three, clearance of repeat blood cultures at 72 hours, the presence of an identifiable and easily removable focus of infection, and obviously removal of that focus, no echocardiographic or clinical signs of endocarditis, no osteomyelitis, no secondary focus of infections identified, no pre-existing valve abnormalities, and lastly, no implanted prosthetic devices. Complicated bacteremia is basically everything else. An easy way to remember the duration of intravenous therapy for uncomplicated Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia is that it should always be at least 14 days. We say this because there are patients who need to be reviewed daily for relapse or metastatic complications who will need courses that extend beyond 14 days because there are no longer uncomplicated cases. A complicated Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia infection, that is, those that are positive on follow-up blood cultures, community-acquired infection, or fever for more than 72 hours will require longer courses of antibiotic treatment with a minimum of four weeks of therapy. For Staphylococcal endocarditis, 
four to six weeks of therapy are recommended. If your patient has an osteomyelitis, this course extends even further to at least six to eight weeks of therapy. In osteomyelitis, oral therapy may need to continue for many months. These are the sorts of cases where collaboration is essential. Give your local ID doc or clinical microbiologist a call. I just want to mention here that the dogma in staphylococcal endocarditis used to be that antibiotics should be administered intravenously for the total duration of therapy. The POET trial was an interesting trial that came out in 2019 and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It looked at partial oral versus total intravenous antibiotic therapy of left-sided endocarditis in around 200 patients in each arm. It showed that oral step-down therapy in, in stable patients with left-sided endocarditis showed no discernible outcome difference in subgroup analysis and non-inferiority margins were indeed met for this novel approach. I mention this study because there is a definite gap in the knowledge about how we treat complicated staph aureus infections in terms of treatment strategies, but the good news is that researchers are starting to look at this issue. Thanks, it was really an excellent overall summary. So Michelle, before I ask you for your take-home message, we're going to move now to our spotlight feature for this episode which is the mini-micro message. Hello everyone, my name is Samira. I am nine years old and I live in Johannesburg. Today, I will tell you some fun facts about fungi. Did you know that the Lego pieces we play with are made from a substance that comes from a fungus called Aspergillus? Do you know what the largest organism in the world is? If you thought it was the blue whale, think again. It is a fungus called the honey mushroom. Hope you enjoyed my fun facts. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> I didn't know that about Lego books, did you? No, I really didn't. But I know that they're making styrofoam out of mushrooms, or there's some like we nuts of plastic that they're making out of mushrooms now as well. So oh, really? that's amazing. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. So our last point, Michelle, would be a quick take-home message for the listeners. It's the first microbe many of us learn about. But don't let that fool you. The successful diagnosis and management of this organism is nuanced and requires attention to detail. The successful management of Staph aureus bacteremia really is a team sport that needs effective communication to ensure favorable outcomes, both between teams looking after these patients as well as with the patients themselves. Treatment regimens and durations require considerable buy-in from all parties. Michelle, it was really lovely to have you on the show. We really hope you'll be able to join us again for another episode on Microbe Mail. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in today's show. And thank you to your listeners for tuning in. If you have enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get your feedback by email, on social media, or on YouTube. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, send us an email at mail.microbe@gmail.com. That's it from me, Ben, your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Men.